0: Well, Father, we come before you honored that we can celebrate the day of all celebrations, the resurrection of your Son, the hope and cornerstone of our faith. And Father, as we reflect on that miracle today, Father, I just pray that you'll just fill our hearts with joy and anticipation at the resurrection that is to come, that we might sense the resurrection power as it flows even today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the, uh, the great modern hymns that we just sung today and on Friday uh, is The Power of the Cross by the Gettys. I'll just read you some lyrics. I don't do solos. <laughs> Even if I wanted to, Becky would mute my mic. You would understand. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. I think all of us, we have a deep appreciation for the power of the cross, right? We have the cross right behind me. Uh, It's a It's a powerful symbol of the actual sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when he was our substitute, when he died. And we look at the cross, and there's all this symbolism packed into there, right? The the love of Christ displayed, the act of atonement, which allows us to be reconciled and forgiven, The cross is very moving because it still has actual power, not symbolic power, but actual power. But one great thing about this whole weekend is we celebrate the cross on Friday. We celebrate the empty tomb on Sunday. Now, we may not have an empty tomb hanging around here, but isn't it significant that the that God's people don't meet on Saturdays anymore. They meet on Sunday because this is the Lord's day and this is the day of the week where the Lord chose to resurrect His Son. And so every Sunday we, we get together. I mean, that is uh, that's a, a celebration of the resurrection. And the p- title of this message is The Power of the Resurrection. We, we often sing about the power of the cross as we should. But today I wanted to focus on the power of the resurrection, and this is what I mean. The resurrection was not this event that happened 2,000 years ago and then stopped. The power of the resurrection extends to this day, because the resurrection is the greatest of all miracles that Jesus ever performed, right? You look at the various miracles that he performed or that he partook in, um, he was involved in the incarnation, which would be a close rivalry. I mean, that was significant, right? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taken on human flesh. That doesn't happen every day. Giving sight to the blind, helping the lame to walk, casting out demons, raising Lazarus from the dead. All of those are significant miracles, but what we celebrate today is really the greatest of all miracles And the power that happened 2,000 years ago extends today in four different ways. Uh, They are as follows. Jesus' resurrection is a powerful proof. Jesus' resurrection gives him absolute power. Jesus' resurrection means that he has the power to keep his promises. And Jesus' resurrection means he has the power to transform his people. The resurrection is a powerful miracle. And today, as we celebrate the resurrection, we don't just celebrate a resurrection power that came and went 2,000 years ago. It is active today. And for those of you who are uninitiated, I'll I'll tell you how you can get a taste of this power. But first of all, what I want to do is I, I want to define exactly what I mean by the resurrection. Okay? Now, the resurrection means that the body that was taken down from the cross was placed in the tomb, and then three days later, day and a half, depending on how you reconcile it, but three days, one part of each day, that body came out of the tomb. The same body that went in is the same body that went out with some differences. Right? This was not a resuscitation like what happened with Lazarus. There was something different about this body that came out of the tomb. Now, to appreciate this, I, I, I want to focus on what happened on Saturday, okay? But before I get there, I want to read John 19, 30 to 34. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came back and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but when the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. That is a reference to decay. When Jesus breathed his last, he had one final brain surge, and then his brain went dead. His heart stopped beating, the blood stopped circulating. His body went completely limp. And at that point, his broken body began the transition to becoming dust. Without oxygen, the blood cells began to die. Without muscle movement, his body lost its fluids, went flaccid. His broken body began a process called, well, self-decay. Self-digestion, officially, where enzymes from his liver and his intestines began to escape containment and began to eat away at his own body. When his heart stopped beating, his blood began to pool, right? That's why you have the, the water and the blood coming out of his side. When the Roman soldiers looked at him on the cross, they would have noticed that the lower half of his body was discolored, uh, maybe in a, in a purplish color, because the blood began to sag to the lower half of his body. They would remove the nails, remove the ropes, take down his flaccid body and, and take it to a tomb. And as this was happening, uh, the process of rigor mortis was beginning to take place. Certain chemicals in his body would cause his muscles to, to stiffen and tighten and, and, and bloat. Peak rigor mortis took place after about 12 hours. At that point the body begins to go limp again. The the skin loosens and all those bacteria and enzymes that are feasting away in the process of self-digestion are are emitting certain gases and so the body is bloating and the skin is loosening. They wrapped them in myrrh and aloes and, and, and a cloth but it didn't stop the process. His self-digestion was eating away at his body. He was dead and decaying. But on that Sunday morning, the power quickened that body. All those broken blood cells were fused back together. Those enzymes and bacteria went back from which they came. The skin tightened. The muscles reformed. The brain activity surged. And he opened his eyes, he sat up, stood up, and walked out of a tomb. Now, there was no one to actually see that miracle, no human at least. Some angels were there, and one stayed behind and offered the following explanation to a startled witness Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Now, this is not the first time a resurrection happened. There is a resuscitation of Lazarus, but there is something very different about this one. See, this resurrection was a resurrection to a new body which would never be cursed and would never taste death again. Paul describes this new body in 1 Corinthians 15 where there was some confusion about the nature of the resurrection, and in 44-44, through 40, 40 through 44, Paul says this, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for a star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So this was a complete and total transformation, resurrection that has never happened before. He was the first fruits of one who was raised from the dead, and this resurrection power is going to be on full display during the final resurrection, when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ Jesus will be raised, and those who are alive will be taken with Him into the air and have these new spiritual resurrection bodies. But the bookends of this power, of the resurrection, are not the only um, disp- not the only dispersal of this power you can have resurrection power right now. And there's four ways that it still surges through. Number one, Jesus' resurrection is a powerful proof. Now, Christianity has always been met with some skepticism, right? In the early days, how could this peasant from Nazareth be the king of Israel? How could he be the Messiah? Well, the answer to that question was there was a sign given, the most powerful sign ever given, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even today, right, there's there's all kinds of questions about the legitimacy of Christianity, and what do we point to? You point to the resurrection because it is a powerful proof. And what's interesting is when Jesus encounters some skeptics about his own ministry, he points to this proof. Matthew chapter 12 is uh, is a fascinating chapter. It's when the Pharisees and Sadducees were basically accusing Jesus of being a, a servant of Satan. The only reason, Jesus, you're able to do all these miracles is because you basically have control over the demons, right? This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing the miracles of Jesus that were facilitated by the Holy Spirit to, to Satan. A- and as they confront him, they also come to him with a request in Matthew twelve thirty eight. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, this seems to be a reasonable request. If you are who you say you are, why don't you give us some proof? I know we've gotten on a bad start. You accused us of, you know, blaspheming the Holy Spirit and talked about us being damned. But if you were to just give us a sign, then we would believe i mean when moses went to egypt to lead the people out of the promised land god gave him some ability to make signs remember the staff and the snake i mean what do you say jesus just give us a sign and jesus says okay okay verse 39 he answered them an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, years ago, when my children gathered around me for bedtime stories, one of our favorite bedtime stories was Jonah, right? It's compelling. All right, you guys know the story of Jonah, Prophet of God, told by God to go to Nineveh. Wicked, evil, barbarous people. All that they did is not detailed in children's stories, but if you read current stories, you'll find it. And instead of going to Nineveh, which was to his his east, he went as far west as possible. Tried to run from God. He said, I don't want to see those people get saved. And while he was on the ocean in the Mediterranean, God sent a storm. The sailors did everything to try to rescue him, but Jonah knew it was from the Lord and said, this is what you need to do, sailors. If you want to live, throw me into the ocean. My God sent this storm. So he gets sent into the ocean, and as he's about to drown, what happened? A great fish swallowed him up and then swam close to Nineveh, as close as I guess you can get, and barfed him on the land, right? Right? My kids really loved it when I used the word barf, by the way, (laughs) of the age. And this had a huge impact for Nineveh. Do you guys know what Nineveh literally means? It means fish town. Fish town. What? They believed that their town was founded by some God creature that was half man and half fish. Now, this was an interesting time for Nineveh, because Nineveh was was a great empire, it expanded rapidly, but now is kind of in the process of contraction and and decay. Uh, Rivals were rising up, there was internal discord, there was even a plague. They kind of were sensitive that the end might be near. And all of a sudden, this man shows up with bleached skin and clumps of hair missing because of when you're in the belly of a fish, stomach acid has its effects, right? And they're looking at this guy who's walking around saying in 40 days Nineveh will be judged and, and they hear his story. Wait a second. You were tossed overboard and a giant fish swallowed you up and this fish barfed you up near fishtown? Now, you think they're asking for a sign at that point? Jonah is the sign. And that's the point that he's making. Jonah was encased in fish flesh for three days and three nights. Jesus will be encased in in a hole in the earth for three days and three nights. Jonah was delivered out of the tomb, and so was Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you want to see a sign, I will be that sign after the resurrection. If you want proof, here it is. So, what does he do with the skeptical people? He points to the resurrection. You see another encounter with a skeptic when he is on trial for his life and the high priest asked him a question in Matthew 26, 63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Just shoot straight with me, Jesus. We want to know, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so. You, You said it yourself. And then he goes on. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He makes a reference to a glorious, mysterious passage that we see in Daniel. In Daniel 7, 13-14, the prophet sees this. I saw in the night vision to behold with clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's basically telling Caiaphas, Caiaphas, next time you see me, I'm going to be coming as the Son of Man, glorified with my Father. And I'm going to come and take over this entire planet. Am I the king? If you say so. And remember what Caiaphas did, what everyone did. They they tore their clothes. This is blasphemy. But you know what? The resurrection is going to be the sign. He's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise again, rise up, and come back in power. I mean, what greater sign does anyone need? What greater sign does anyone need? Now, someone might say, you know, Pastor Dave, that happened 2,000 years ago, okay? He died, was buried, rose again. That was 2,000 years ago. We need a fresh sign. Would it be possible for Jesus to do it just one more time? The point of a resurrection is that it only happens once. You only die once and have an indestructible body that you're resurrected into, and that happens once. The point of this new body is that it can never be destroyed. It only has to happen once for it to be a sign, and yet an evil and adulterous generation wants more. And what's fascinating is, As we keep on reading when Jesus rose from the dead, how do they take this sign? Matthew 28, 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. They're reporting about the resurrection. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and, and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Right, there's always been some wacky conspiracy. Jesus fainted on the cross. The disciples went to the wrong tomb. Jesus had a twin brother that showed up and confused everybody. I mean, people have been trying to explain this away for a long time because they don't want the sign. They don't want to submit to the sign and all that it means. You know, and honestly, if you were to just look at the resurrection, I mean, there's all kinds of proofs that I could get into. One is that every other Messianic claimant that came and had a following died and the following dispersed. But something happened with Jesus where against all odds and all expectations, all of the early followers said he has risen from the dead. They even moved the day of worship to coincide with this day. Women discovered him at the tomb. Eleven of the twelve disciples died martyrs' death. Believing that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, it's all true. And Satan has tried to disprove this for thousands of years and has failed. The power of the resurrection is because Christ has risen from the dead. It proves that this is true, right? If God could raise Christ from the dead, I think he could do the lesser miracle of writing a book that perfectly captures his life. It is a powerful sign. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection gives him absolute power. Gives him absolute power. Now, in human history, if you have an absolute ruler, he, and in some cases she, will rule as long as he or she is alive. When death comes, they are no longer in power. When Stalin died, he is no longer in power. When Hitler died, he is no longer in power. You can take those implications any way you want in your prayer life today. But, um, but with the resurrection, he secured absolute power. That means that his death, he will never die, and his reign will extend forever. Now, there's another way that the reign of a ruler can end, and that is your death. Right? When you are dead, you think about, let's say, someone who's in an abusive marriage, when she dies, she's no longer married. The power is broken, right? So either way, death breaks power. And some people would see this as a good thing. But what happens when you have a good ruler, a faithful ruler, a treasured ruler, one who can be trusted? Now, some people think about absolute rule, and, and they don't like that. We live in an individualistic culture where uh, we want to be our own boss. We want our own truth. We want to live our own lives. But the fact of the matter is all of us are subject to a dark ruler. In Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The power of death. The devil. Those who are not under the lordship of Christ are under the lordship of the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. Well, I don't worship Satan. He's fine with that, as long as you don't worship Jesus. So how does he wield power? Well, it's the power of death, the fear of death. I mean, we just emerged from a pandemic, and, and it's really interesting how... The means of moving the masses towards policy goals and other things is the utilization of fear, right? Fear sells. People get into false religions because of the fear of death. Fear controls us more than we know. It, the, this reality of death leads to slogans like you only live once. It's a reason why people will pour themselves into to various religions because they are under the spell. So how did Jesus defeat this enemy? Well, when you look at death and the control of death, you need to remember the source of death. Right? The source of death is given to us in Genesis chapter 3. right? God created the garden. It was good. Put Adam and Eve in the middle of it. And he says in Genesis 2, 16-17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? And what did they do? They ate. And that began a process where they became estranged from God, estranged from each other. And there was a death sentence which was delayed because God killed some animals to allow them to live even a little bit longer. But that is why we die, is because Adam and Eve sinned, and you as their children, I'll include myself, we have sinned as well. All of us deserve to die. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I mean, the reason why we have death in this world is because of sin and estrangement from God. It's kind of like you you cut off a plant at the root, at the stem. You're no longer connected to the nourishment, and you will wilt and die. All of us are broken. And you know, every time you have a disease, in fact, I did some research on this, less than 10% 10 of people die of, of accidents, murder, war, or suicide. The overwhelming majority of death happens through disease. Every time we are sick, some little bacteria or virus something else begins to work our bodies and cause our organs not to function. And that is a taste of what is to come. Because one day, death, most likely through disease, is going to come for us. And that's why Jesus' healing ministry was so significant. It wasn't just magic tricks. He was showing that he has the power over disease and the power over death. And when he was on the cross, what happened was the wages of sin is death. And Jesus experienced death in the fullest sense. Not only did he experience the pain, torment, and torture of death, he experienced spiritual death in that his relationship with the Lord, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship was severed during that time on the cross. He endured the full wrath so that those who trust in him will never have to taste spiritual death and will conquer physical death at the resurrection. And so now, he has full power over death because he was raised from the dead. Right, if Jesus was still in the grave, he'd still be working off our debt. And we'd have no assurance that we'd be paid for in full. Right, I've heard it said that the resurrection was God's amen to Christ, it is finished. And now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now Jesus will have a reign that is uninterrupted by death. Those who are his subjects will enjoy his reign, even if they may die once, but will live again in the eternal kingdom. His resurrection means that he is the Lord, he is undefeatable, he is the absolute ruler, and he has the power... To keep his promise. His the power to keep his promises. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus makes a lot of promises. They're great promises. I'll give you three of them. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? Isn't that just a great promise? Weary, heavy laden. Go to Jesus. Go to him. He'll take you. Matthew 19, 28-29. Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And that new kingdom, you're going to be there. At the regeneration, you will be there. You'll be resurrected with him. And anything that you've given up in this life will be repaid a hundredfold. And then the Great Commission, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Always to the end of the age when we'll be with him face to face. I mean, those, those are great promises and, you know, promises are not only as good as, they, as a person who makes them, but sometimes... Certain things prohibit our ability to make those kinds of promises. In high school, I had two good friends who were better friends with each other than with me, Christy and and Leslie. And about 15 years ago, Christy, who lived out of town, uh, decided to see her family and wanted to get lunch with Leslie. And she was waiting in the restaurant at the appointed time. Five minutes went by, 10, 15, 45 After about an hour, it's just clear that she wasn't coming and Leslie wasn't answering her phone. Well, when she checked the news, she found out that Leslie was actually murdered in the parking lot at Target. I'm not sure if you remember that. Clearly, she wasn't able to keep her promise. You can look at Jesus, who made all these great promises, but then he was murdered. Right, we'd all understand, okay, you thought you could do this, but you couldn't because you were murdered. Death took your life, and that means you're released from any promises that you made in this life. But because Jesus was resurrected, it didn't matter if he was murdered. He will never be murdered again. He will never die again. Every promise that he makes to every believer is still in play because not only will death not defeat him, but anyone who is resurrected can show himself to have supreme power to keep every single promise that he made. And part of these promises that he offers us is a promise of transformation. Jesus' resurrection means that he has the power to transform. Now, when we look at nouns of transformation in the Bible, there's three glorious ones. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. I'll explain what each one means. Justification is a declaration of innocence. Right? If I am come late to an appointment... I will try to justify myself by saying I wasn't irresponsible watching two overtimes of the basketball game. I was caught in traffic. It wasn't my fault, right? When people try to justify themselves, they try to explain why they're innocent. It wasn't my fault because of this excuse. And so when it comes to to God, we stand condemned because of our sin and we can say it wasn't my fault, but the reality is it is and this puts God in a very difficult conundrum because how can God justify the ungodly the ungodly can't be justified and if you justify an ungodly person excuse an ungodly person look the other way at a politician who is corrupt a judge who presides over a case over somebody who has truly committed the crime but he's taken a bribe i mean that is not justice so God is able to justify the ungodly not because the ungodly are no longer ungodly but because the punishment for being ungodly was placed on Jesus Christ on the cross paul tells us romans 4:25 who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification right that is justification through the resurrection Because Jesus rose from the dead, that payment for our sins is considered paid for. It's the receipt. It's the certification. Jesus' resurrection means that you can be justified before God. God can give you an innocent verdict because your sin and your punishment was placed on the cross and Jesus raised from the dead means it was paid in full. So he transforms your justification. Justification. He also transforms your sanctification. Your sanctification. Now in Ephesians 2.1, Paul gives us this brief assessment of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now obviously we were all alive at one point in time. So what does he mean by dead? I mean, one of the worst things you can say to a child of yours is, you are dead to me. Has ever heard that phrase? You are dead to me. I no longer consider you to be my son. You are no longer alive. This is a relationship that is over. You are dead to me. Well, when we sin, we basically tell God, you are dead to me. There is a severing of that relationship. We are estranged from God because of our sins. But something happens when we are justified. In Romans 6, 5, Paul tells the Romans, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So when somebody believes in the cross, right, they are united with us. His death is our death. But you have a. But wait, there's more. His life, his resurrection life, is your life. Well, what does that mean? Well, in Romans six eleven, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Number one, sin doesn't have power over you anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. I mean, one of the great tragedies that some of you have seen in your family is addictions. Somebody you love is addicted to opioids, pornography, alcohol. I mean, you name it. Even an eating disorder is kind of an inverse addiction. They just can't say no. It's gripping them, controlling them. They, they can't stop it. And that's a picture of dead people's relationship with the Lord and the relationship with the sin. They can't help themselves. They can't say no. But because Christ died for us, that power has been broken. You no longer have to sin. Romans 6.14 for sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law but under grace. The power of sin is broken you don't have to sin. I mean, the power of the resurrection means that God is able to take that corpse that was placed in the tomb, reanimate it, and give it eternal life and a brand new body. The power of the resurrection means that someday, if you were cremated all of that ash is going to be reconstituted into a human body that is you. If you were buried and eaten by maggots, and it gets really disgusting when you read about bodies after death, but it doesn't matter because it's going to be new and beautiful and whole. And that resurrection transformation that's going to happen in the future, which happened in the past, there is a miracle that happens right now in the moment somebody believes. There is a, a mini-resurrection well, what do you mean Ezekiel 36:26 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh you'll get a, a new heart that is inclined to worship the Lord and you know what else on that great day, at that final trumpet blast, those of you who are dead in Christ and those of you who are alive in Christ, it doesn't matter, there's going to be a final step called glorification. You'll have a glorified body that is curse-free. All your hair follicles will be back on your head. The gray will go away. That knee replacement is not going to be resurrected. It's going to be your bones again. Cavities will be filled. Eyesight will be restored. There will be a new, wonderful ability to actually be in the presence of God and enjoy His presence forever. And that is because of the resurrection. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So how do you get this power? How do you get this power? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10:9, "If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, not was, but is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from the curse of sin, saved from the fires of hell, saved from the dominion of darkness and Satan, you will be saved." It's not something that you do. We can't change ourselves, but we can be changed. But part of that is just surrendering and asking the Lord to change you. And that's really what the resurrection is all about. It's about a changed corpse. It's about that corpse that went down from the cross that through an act of God was reanimated and glorified so that all those who believe that that happened and confessed that the resurrected Jesus is Lord, trust Him in faith and repentance, will be justified, will be sanctified, and will be glorified. And then you'll be able to anticipate this wonderful passage, and I'll end with this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven... Oh, Father, we come before you celebrating the power of the resurrection, and I pray for anyone here who has not experienced that power but wants to, that they won't let the sermon go by, that they'll talk to somebody about this, that this Easter will be the beginning of a wonderful journey for them that will end with that final trumpet blast, with seeing you, being with you, and being with a new body. We pray that all of us today, as we go our separate ways and feast and reflect, we'll just be very mindful that the power of the resurrection still lives today. And may we live in light of this wonderful reality. In Christ's name, amen.